Welcome to Different from the Other Kids, a weekly talk show for parents of challenging children. With your host, Angela Sunis, author of the Amazon best-selling book, Different from the Other Kids. Each week, Angela will interview an individual or professional within the mental health community. Different from the Other Kids. Season 2, production of Marketing Navy Agency. Hello and welcome to Different From The Other Kids. I'm Angela, your host. For today, Different From The Other Kids is a podcast for parents of challenging children. I wanted to introduce you to a brand new effort today before we get started on our interview. This is from CNN, and the title of it is Depression Awareness on the Red Carpet. Seven years ago on the set of the sci-fi show Supernatural, star Jared Paladecki had an anxiety attack. After speaking with a doctor on the set, he was told he had clinical depression. More recently, in quotes, one of my friends hung himself on New Year's Eve, he told CNN, but for the grace of God, go I. These experiences got him thinking about how he could help. Four months ago, Paladecki felt he had to tell the world of his diagnosis, so he launched the charity, hashtag, always keep fighting. It sold t-shirts, more than 24,000 in the most recent campaign so far, with hundreds of thousands of dollars raised to support various mental health causes, but it has been most effective in creating awareness and reducing stigma. That's what we're all about here, different from the other kids, so I wanted to bring that to your attention. If you ever see anything from always keep fighting, Let's support them as best we can. So, joking about mental health can make people really uncomfortable and can deeply offend. But what if the person making the jokes was the one affected by the challenge or illness? Does that make a difference? I want to introduce you to somebody called Robert Coven. His name is actually, to me, Booby. And this will give you a little insight into who Booby is. I made a mistake in emailing him about our interview, and instead of typing in Bobby, it became Booby, and he has insisted since that that is his name. Here's Booby. (laughs) Being a stand-up comedian, he makes me laugh. He is very, very open and very a wonderful guy to have a conversation with, so I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But imagine for a second that we have somebody and not just, I'm not talking about Bobby specifically, but anybody doing stand-up that might want to talk about things like, well, let's just go down a litany of them, self-loathing, selling their body, suicide, being homeless, maxing out credit cards, weeks spent sleeping, hypersexuality, failed businesses, failed marriages, shame, emptiness, worthlessness, You wouldn't think that that would be something that would be good for anybody, especially not the person up on stage in front of a crowd talking about them. But what has happened with stand-up and mental health is really fascinating to me. The people going through this challenge of getting up in front of many, many people and saying something about where they are in some of the darkest times in their life, some of the things they're saying about it is it's cathartic, it's empowering makes them less lonely, less isolated. It's therapeutic, it's inspirational, and it's motivational. Channeling these thoughts into laughter gives a new dimension of purpose 
and makes them realize that maybe, since other people are laughing, maybe they're not such a bad person after all. Maybe that shame doesn't have to go any further. Let me introduce you a little bit further to Bobby. He is in sales and marketing at a company called Visit Us 360. He works in digital marketing. Please welcome to the program, Bobby Coven. I met him uh, very uh, serendipitously at a friend's 60th birthday party probably two months ago. And I had the great privilege of sitting and listening to part of a stand-up. We were in the middle of a big party, of course, and everyone's having a great time. And Bobby decides to rip into a little bit of stand-up, which was hysterical. And not really sure. We're just actually kibitzing about how that kind of happened, that we ended up on this conversation. But the conversation basically led us to that Bobby is also on a bit of a bender, if you will, in trying to give some awareness to mental illness. He's had his struggles himself, and I just wanted to welcome Bobby very much to the program. And, well, let's get started. So, so Bobby, speak to me slowly, or speak to me quickly. How, how, how did all of this affect you? When did it start? And give me a little history of all things Bobby. How's that? Okay, well... For some reason, I've always been a Bobby. Some people are Robert, some people are Bob, but I've always been a, a Bobby. And uh, Angela was so kind to send me a bit of a, an outline and talked about when did you first know you were different. Well, I never knew I was different, but my mother knew I was different because I was born posterior, whatever that means. <laughs> means that I think I came out upside down. Yes. So I've been upside down most most of my life, but my childhood was very normal as far as I was concerned. You know, I mean, I was, my mother said when we went on the bus, I was born in Boston, that I had all, was telling stories and asking a million questions all the time, unlike other children. And grade five, my father was a surgeon, and that when they operated, they heard a lot of jokes, and he came back and told me, you know, what do you know, uh, do you know the definition of diaper in Chinese? And I said, no, and he said, sack of poo. So <laughs> I went to the kindergarten class and told that joke, and the kindergarten class teacher asked me who, who said it, and I said, my father. But, you know, I've always been, I guess it's called acting out, and I was a product of, uh, I guess, the 70s, and in the educational system, I went from a structured public school into a new kind of junior high where they had the credit system and then rammed back into a structured high school system. And in grades 12 and 13, I was put or asked to go to a special free school called AISB, which was an alternate independent study program, because I was very hyper. And most people didn't understand what it was, and I was probably better learning on myself. So hyper meaning that you just that you were having a hard time sitting still and you had to get up and move and you couldn't concentrate unless you were probably moving those That's kinds right. of things. I couldn't I couldn't sit still and just people just thought I was hyperactive. That there was no ADD. There was no mm -hmm. kind of di diagnosis then. But throughout that, I was always funny, whether it was telling jokes, whether I play the uh, piano and make up songs. So I can give you an example of that a little bit later oh, that'd be awesome. if you want. That'd be great. <laughs> but, you know, was I bullied? No. I can remember counting on the, my right hand the number of people that made fun of me. And they mostly made fun of me because of my twitches, which really developed when I was about 11 years old. Probably because, from a, an anxiety point of view, 
I was coming up to my bar mitzvah because uh, obviously you can realize I'm Jewish uh, and the right word is kibitzing, not kibitzing. It's all right, you. you know. Listen, I don't know how to <laughs> I don't know how to put a host in my mouth either, so that's what that's how it works. Say it again. Kibitzing. Kibitzing. Yeah, the kibitz. Kibitz. You know? Kibitzing, I apologize. Kibitzing. So anyways, maybe it was because I had this event that I had to, and I was very short. They had to put a special stool on for me to, to say my to say my portion. But that's when my mother, who's my parents are still alive, told me that, you know, that, that the twitches started. But I was always, you know, very loud. I got myself into drugs, not hard drugs, but smoked a lot of pot when I was a kid. And I'm very athletic. I was actually 10th in Canada for freestyle skiing, and I've run marathons, but I failed gym. Well, how uh-huh. can you fail gym? Well, I, I just, know how. You know how? By <laughs> yeah. not going. Go, <laughs> not going. I just didn't go. Okay. So I went to, you know, you know, I would take any excuse to try not, try to, to get out of it. So was I always different? I'm not sure. I didn't think I was. <laughs> but uh, when I was 22, I had the opportunity after I got out of university and after I spent a year snowmaking up at uh, my ski club, Beaver Valley, to move out west to sell condominiums, which was a new phenomenon. And I got encephalitis, which is a pretty bad disease and swelling of the brain. And mm-hmm. when I came back to Toronto, uh, they didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, they thought my, I might have had a brain tumor. So they did, they had the psychiatrist come in to see me. Because they didn't want to do a spinal tap. Because if you did have a brain tumor, it would be like letting the air out of a radiator and you end up getting coning in your brain and, and becoming a vegetable. Yeah. So the psychiatrist came in and he said very nicely, he looked at you know, like, what do you think, yeah, have any issues in your life that you like to talk about? I said, look at you know, I've been twitching since I was a kid, and it really bothers me. And he asked me a bunch of questions like, you know, do you have anybody in your family? I said, yes, my grandmother, and I have a cousin that twitched. And he said, so it's on your maternal side. And uh, one thing led to the other, and he said, look at you know, it's an orphan disease, but uh, I believe you have Tourette's. And there's a new clinic at the Western. There's a guy named Dr. Moldalski. I want you to go and see him. Well, Modolsky's expertise was both Tourette's and sleep disorder. So when I went there... Did you have trouble sleeping? No, no trouble sleeping, except when I was with him, I had trouble. I was asleep (laughs) because he was so boring. (laughs) But they diagnosed me with Tourette's, and that was a bit explainable as to my behavior up to that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I adapted uh, to my behavior, and actually, they actually asked me to speak at the Tourette's Society... (laughs) <laughs> because I didn't, I did it in a non-medical way, not knowing it, but I ran marathons. Okay. I exercised. How many times did I do I hear this, parents? This is awesome. Thank you, Bobby. This is yeah. A lot of people get through a lot of stuff with some kind of mental disrupt, if you will, by exercise. It really, really can change everything for people. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's all right because exercise is how I self-medicated but for me exercise means running you know 10k bicycling some 10 20 miles doing tai chi stretching and then having sex and then by that time (laughs) i'm down to the same energy level as most people when they wake up right so really what this is all about angela is it's an energy issue 
that people need to understand. And it's really quite simple. Usually, you know, I'm a businessman. If you can put everything in an elevator pitch on one business card, then you probably would be successful. And in, in a real simple, this is all about energy. Energy can be positive or energy can be negative. And the matter of being able to identify that and manage it. Absolutely. So, you know, I was a very successful business person, and so I had lots of energy. I traveled around the world. I enjoyed public speaking. You know, I made, I created things from nothing, and, and I had a lot of positive reinforcements. My relationships, they say people with anxiety or depression or mental disorders have a hard time keeping a job and having relationships. Well, I kept the job. It was no problem. Having relationships was a little bit more difficult because it's difficult living with somebody with mood disorders. And if the person isn't willing to understand it and they're looking for, you know, a quick fix, it just doesn't happen. I mean, it's a lifetime kind of situation. So anyways, I trucked along managing this. I didn't go speak to the Tourette Society because I said, are you crazy? I'm going to go and stand up in front of a thousand twitching people, you know. <laughs> Because one of the things that this Tourette's does, it's a mimicking disease. Like if you see somebody sucking their thumb, mm -hmm. as a 40-year-old, you want to suck your thumb. See, I did not know that. I have heard of all different kinds of tics, whether it's a cock-a-doodle-doo or it's a, a million different ones, dog barking. But that's why that happens. I didn't know that. It mimics. Yeah. Well, it's a mimicking. So, you know, I met Angela, and you, she is so beautiful and so wonderful yeah, and gives such positive vibes. But this is the last thing I like talking about, Tourette's, because I've managed to stay ahead of the curve all my life. This, you don't want to talk about it because then you remember a twitch you had or a grunt you had or whatever. And now I know how to manage it because I'm into uh, mindful meditation and mm -hmm. I can meditate it and I know it will go away. <laughs> it took me a long time to figure out that it would go away. Anyways, I trucked along. I had a couple of uh, bad business experiences, and I ended up in the hospital, and they told me I had a virus. Well, now that I know... And this is after, now that you're back, you've done the encephalitis thing, now you're now Yeah, you're I'm, back, I'm, you're I'm back like 30, 35 okay, years old, and yeah. I end up in the hospital, and I have a virus, and I get better. It wasn't a virus, it was depression, but nobody knew about it. And then there was another time that I had a girlfriend that had left me, and it was another trigger, and I ended up in the hospital as a virus, but it was depression. So, you know, I've had a number of, of uh, episodes where, you know, I was depressed, I did have a terrible anxiety, but it was always cast off as something else. Mm -hmm. And what's very interesting, Angela, unlike people that grow up <laughs> in families where there are, is no medical support, I grew up in a family that had five uncles that were doctors, five aunts that, that were nurses. My father was a doctor. My aunt was a nurse. My grandmother twitched her head off. They thought she was nervous. So, you know, nobody really ever can, can diagnose it. They always make an excuse because, you know, they tell themselves what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyways, even though I had Tourette's, I never was told that it really is the anxiety part that is really getting to me. Nobody said, you have anxiety, you're very anxious. So I uh, got a job flying around the world. I lived in Mexico City, I lived in Hull, Amsterdam, I lived in Paris, I lived in London. My job, this was pre-9-11, uh, I flew all over the world. 
that was first class, first class hotels, I was anxious as hell. Mm -hmm. Every time I got in the limousine to get to the airport, I was anxious. When I got on the airplane, I got psychosomatic systems. I mm -hmm. did have a kidney stone on attack, attack on an airplane, so that did give me some real issues. But, you know, I managed to do what I had to do even though I was so anxious. Mm -hmm. And when I was in my, I guess my 50, I was in China. I mean, the most important card I had in China was the local hospital. Wherever I went, I looked for the, I didn't look for the uh, sightseeing tour, like the Great Wall of China. I looked for the H and the hospital so that I would know where I would go. So, you know, I was very anxious. That's, that's very anxious, yeah. And I decided that instead of traveling around the world, uh, I would move up north to Beaver Valley, which is where I've been going since I was 12, and uh, start a business. Now, what that meant is I didn't have to go on an airplane anymore, mm -hmm. and I figured that it was a way of controlling my anxiety. So I moved up north, and I had a girlfriend. She was a very nice person, but she didn't understand what was going on, and she made me anxious. Everything she did made me anxious, and I asked her after five years to, to leave, and she still wouldn't leave. So that made me anxious. Then I went and I got some psychotherapy in Collingwood, and as in all therapists, there's good ones and bad mm -hmm. ones, and this one was a bad one. What happened was is that my positive energy all of a sudden turned very negative, and here the guy who has so much energy and so much um, positiveness couldn't get out of bed. But I was isolated. I didn't know, and for... And with my luck, one of my best friends is Dr. Pat Rockman, who runs the Mindfulness uh, Center in Toronto and is a world expert on mindfulness for mood disorders. Oh, cool. What's that, how do you spell that name? Rockman. Dr. R Pat Rockman. R-O-C-K-M-A-N. Okay. And it's called the Mindfulness Center. Awesome. Anyway, she became my guiding force. Her and her husband, who actually was a, is a GP as well, but uh, has spent a lot of time in his practice dealing with this, and that was a cardiac, uh, assist on the cardiac team. And in Collingwood, they wanted to send me to Homewood. Wow. That's, that's big. That's big. So I... And why? Because you just... that Because they didn't understand my depression. They, they were not qualified <laughs> to understand what this was all about. So Pat made it no decided for me, because I couldn't make any decisions, that I was moving to Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I sold my house, moved away from my Shangri-La, and I got under care of a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Now, the sad part of it is that the psychiatrist, even though he probably did help me, was just a medicating psychiatrist. So I was on lots of drugs, and of course I was anxious. I wanted to get off them, and I knew from that beginning that I was looking for the magic bullet. So every time I would see him... Or I would try a new drug, or I would get off, or I would get on. I uh, had, I didn't feel better, so therefore I didn't trust the medication. I was supposed to get into CBT, mm -hmm. just cognitive behavior, behavior therapy. therapy at KMH, which is the Canadian Mental Health Hospital. Hospital have. on Queen Street. On Queen Street, yep. And then I, the thing about it was, it took them, me two and a half years to get in it. Like, don't they understand? I'm anxious now. And once not, I, not in two and a half years, I'm not anxious. I'm anxious now. I so when I got in it, it, they said, look, fine, you're in it. Well, I had just got myself a job, which is a tremendous 
accomplishment considering you can't get out of bed. And I didn't feel comfortable asking the guy I worked with, who was a friend of mine, for time off because it was only during the day. I said, do not, people that have mood disorders not work? And they said, no, most of them don't. No. <laughs> Anyways, I couldn't go the first time. Three m- months later, they called me and they said, hey, you can't. Can you go now? And I said, no, I'm still working. They said, well, I'm sorry, you're back to the bar, back of the bus. So they wanted you to go to a day program? Yeah. Okay. But the, the day programs are great. It's just if you're working, it's it's not doable. And they only gave me two chances, and then I had to wait another two and a half years. Right. So I was looking for the magic bullet, and every time I went to the psychiatrist, I thought I had a magic bullet. I built up a wonderful support system, which I call BAST. Bob's amazing support team. And people called me and talked to me. And while they were talking to me, I felt great. But as soon as I hung up the phone, Mm -hmm. I crashed because I wasn't feeling better. Mm -hmm. And I went through mindfulness. I took uh, the course at the Institute. And I practiced only when I was up north. And Pat forced me to practice. But I didn't like it. Because it didn't make me better. It wasn't a magic bullet. So I did that. I exercised, but I couldn't get one foot ahead of the other. And I had to start off by just driving to the health club and then coming back. Then driving to the health club, getting out of my car, coming back to to the point that I was doing it. And, And throughout the whole exercise, it was, hey, Bob, just like those drugs that you're on, exercise is... As important, it is a drug. It is. The only problem is when you're depressed. What most people don't understand is that it's actually, depression is not just a mind issue, it's a physical issue as well. So you feel like you can't even lift your arm, never mind get up and have to get to the health club and actually go for a run. It's, 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 It's debilitating. Well, everybody says, Bob, worrying is like paying interest on a debt that you don't, haven't incurred. I mean, but, you know, uh, it's just thoughts. Mm. But the point is, is that it's very difficult to understand. So I trucked along. Pat, then Dr. Rockman said, listen, you know, you need to get into the Tourette's Society, Tourette's Clinic. So I got into the Tourette's Clinic. (laughs) I was on the waiting list for, you know, a year and a half. But she escalated it. And when I got there... Where's the Tourette's Clinic? At the Toronto Western. At Toronto Western. I yeah. saw a nice guy. We did a study. He says, listen... You the know, Dr. Sandor? No, he's not there anymore. But he's not. A, this was another doctor. Okay. And he said, you know, we've had a lot of success with medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe we can wean you off all your drugs and you can start with medical marijuana. I said, medical marijuana? I've been self-medicating <laughs> since I was 15 years old. <laughs> Anyways, I started with medical marijuana didn't make me feel better. wasn't a magic bullet. It became a pain in the ass. I had to smoke a gram in the morning, a gram at night. I how, got how much a, is a gram? Gram I is. Don't even know. Uh, it's a, it's enough. And now, is it quite a bit? Yeah, it's quite a bit. Okay. But it was it was a it was a medication. I mean, it was, it had certain amounts of levels of THC mm-hmm. versus cannabinoid. It's supposed to be scientific, but it didn't matter because it wasn't a magic bullet. I developed a terrible cough. Then they gave it. To so me. you smoked it. Yeah, I smoked okay. it through a vaporizer. Okay. But I, then they put me on uh, it orally through a, a product called Navalone. And, of course, what happened was one psychiatrist had the other psychiatrist write the prescription, but he didn't want to write the prescription. I got caught in the middle, and I got the wrong dosage. So what happened was is that that wasn't a magic bullet. So I stopped that. So I continued on going to work. 
Luckily, my parents, who were my support system, said to me, uh, Bob, we're too old. We can't do this anymore. You're on your own, which was very frightening. But magically, I don't know if there's a superpower up there or a spiritual person, but I met a wonderful woman who accepted me for who I was. She had the capability, I think, of seeing the rose under the onion. <laughs> and, you know, we started a relationship, and it was a great relationship because she understood my challenges. You know, I gave to her as well because when I'm good, I'm good. Nobody, I mean, you would never know that I have depression, which is no. interesting <laughs> because know. that's all about what depression and anxiety is about is this. Just look over to the guy to the right. Mm -hmm. You never know what he has. Okay. I was actually getting a passport the other day, and I was coughing, and this lady said to me, you know, are you contagious? And I looked at her and I said, well, <laughs> it's, I have Tourette's, and it's a nervous cough, so you can't catch it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you never know, you never know what's happening. Mm -hmm. Anyways, what happened was is that a year ago, June, I had three things happen to me because I was a catastrophic thinker. I thought, you know, that if Angela was coming here and she was late, she probably had a car accident and was dead. Mm. You know, I go to that, mm -hmm. to, to the end. Within the month, I had to leave my job because it just wasn't, you know, I'm, I was much smarter, much more entrepreneurial than the job. It wasn't giving me any challenge. And the guy that I worked for could have found somebody to do it for half the price because it was all email. I had chest pains, which turned into a stress test, which turned into a positive stress test, which turned into an angiogram, which turned into a procedure where it was a false positive. But I was sure I had already even met the, uh, the heart surgeon that was going to do the quadruple to bypass. And I got audited. That's well, like a banner year. It was a month. A month. It, it in a month? If it had happened, Angela, over a year, I'd probably still be sick. Right. But because it happened in a month, my psychiatrist said, by the way, you know, if a normal person had this thing happen, mm -hmm. they'd be anxious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All three happened in a month, and I just said to myself, enough. Now I understand that worrying is a waste of time. I'm just going to get on it. I'm not going to worry about if I'm going to get to be 65 and what kind of money I'm going to have to retire and stuff, because I just want to make it to 60. So I took the summer off. I'm a passionate fly fisherman, and I love fly fishing. <laughs> and I planned with my girlfriend my 60th birthday party, which was a coming out. It wasn't uh, that I was narcissistic and I was celebrating being 60. I never thought I would get there. And lo and behold, 250 people showed up. Oh. And it was just a wonderful experience. And I started off by talking a little bit about, you know, this isn't about my 60th birthday. This is that I've been sick for seven years. And I feel better now, and it's a shame that you have to be ill in order to realize that, you, you, you know, you have to appreciate, I call it ODAD, one day at a time. Mm -hmm. So that's where we end up. Now, to give back to the community, because of humor, I was looking for a venue to speak, to talk about the magic bullet, to talk about mental illness. And it was just impossible with the open mics and whatever. And then somebody told me about this association called the Mood Disorder Association of Ontario. And they had a laughing like crazy program. And it was a group program that used comedy and stand-up as a way of allowing people to uh, meet other people and to, to do comedy. And I just recently completed it. How long was it? Tell me about it. It's 16 bit. weeks. Uh -huh. And it's a group 
session where you check in in the morning, check in at the beginning, and, and it's structured. So you're actually working on jokes for, for setup and punch. And if you go to my website, crazy after all these years, uh, you'll see my stand-up routine. Thanks, Bobby. I'm going to have to stop you right there. We're just out of time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. And let's continue next week right where we left off. Please review our podcast on iTunes. Don't forget to follow Different From The Other Kids on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for all your support. We'll see you next week. Different From The Other Kids, Season 2, Production of Marketing Navy Agency. And now a disclaimer. In general, I, Angela Sunis, am not a doctor, and I certainly don't play one on the internet. I'm a parent, period. The advice from me presented on Different From The Other Kids does not replace advice received directly from a medical health professional. If you think you need help, I do recommend making an appointment with your physician or other appropriate healthcare provider. Thanks for listening to Different From The Other Kids. Made possible with the support of Deborah Kenny Jewelry. Jewelry meant to inspire. You can find them online at www.debrakennyjewelry.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.